0: This week on the Back Table podcast. This is again a little bit controversial with with the OB literature. I've seen certainly some some people talk about it, and it seems to me it would be scary, but managing this hysteroscopically, um, oh. really without significant blood loss, or expectantly, realizing mm-hmm. that, that most of these should get better on their own. But it's a hard thing um, for for a woman to just be bleeding all the time, and Mm -hmm. often they can bleed to the point of needing transfusion. and So while it might not be life-threatening like some of these severe postpartum hemorrhage cases, it is perhaps life disabling. And in those cases, uh, that's where we have played a role. It's typically being diagnosed, I would say for us, on MR. And so MR is excellent at diagnosing this, multi-phase MR. You can see often what side, you can see sort of what part of the uterus, and it can really help guide your therapy. It's one of the only times I would say I perform, if possible, unilateral uterine artery embolization.
1: Welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman crossing catheter with its unique extendable beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Spex LP, created to meet the need for a low-profile version of the Spex shapeable support catheter and the new
0: line of core catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. Now, back to the show.
1: I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti. I'm normally coming to you from Tacoma, Washington, but today I have the pleasure of recording in beautiful Palm Springs. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Dan Sheeran. He is an interventional radiologist at the University of Virginia. And Dr. Sheeran is, um, I would say, the attending that I call the most since graduating fellowship. He's got great insight on cases, and the best part is he knows every single possible complication that can happen for every single case. Um, so he's a great guy to talk to to prep for cases. Dr. Sheeran, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Not that I've caused those complications, <laughs> but, but yeah. I do try to read up on them.
1: <laughs> Our topic today is peripartum and postpartum hemorrhage. So tell me, Dan, how did you get involved with this, this uh, area of IR?
0: So I think this is a little bit of an unmet need nationwide, and within our system, we've been lucky, dating back to one of my mentors, Dr. Sabri, uh, was mm. starting to do a lot of these interventions at our hospital uh, before moving on to the D.C. area, and I sort of indirectly inherited that through him and have tried to grow that as well since his, his departure.
1: Oh, okay. I, I didn't realize it started with Sahar. That's awesome. So I know you have kind of a system to break it down. So break it down for me between how you think of these types of hemorrhages.
0: So I like to break them up into really two big baskets, and then within each basket, I think there's cohorts that are are really quite different. And as you mentioned earlier, peripartum hemorrhage and postpartum hemorrhage. I think typically we think of patients as PPH, postpartum hemorrhage, but, but there is a cohort of patients that... Really, you're managing sort of prospectively, and that would be the peripartum hemorrhage uh, cohort, if you will.
1: Okay, okay. So, what makes up the peripartum hemorrhage?
0: So, it's probably a little bit more uh, controversial, perhaps, depending on the literature you read, much like our IR literature. You can find literature to sort of support whatever you want to do. That's what's great about IR, (laughs) That's right, or whatever you don't want to do. And so, in this case, for for peripartum hemorrhage, I'm really talking about sort of mitigating blood loss anemia during uh, high-risk C-sections.
1: I see. Okay. Um, is that kind of where you get the whole percreta, accreta spectrum That's patients? right. So, this
0: would be patients that are on that accreta spectrum, whether that be by ultrasound or by MR or by combination diagnosis.
1: Okay. So, that's the peripartum. And then what is the postpartum hemorrhage population?
0: So, postpartum, I, I sort of break up in, into three subgroups. These are sort of the, the patients that have had a significant blood loss anemia. You can think of, of PPH classically as 500 to a liter of blood loss, but but right. I think perhaps the better diagnosis is symptomatic blood loss anemia. Mm-hmm. So patients that have ongoing bleeding after delivery uh, but are relatively stable, and then that's one group. Then we have patients that are in extremis, patients that are requiring rapid transfusion, patients that might be on vasopressors, patients that might be intubated. So those are obviously emergent setting. And then we sort of have more elective patients, and these are often not necessarily post uh, delivery of a viable pregnancy, but perhaps Mm. a missed abortion, spontaneous abortion, uh, patients that are having ongoing bleeding over days or weeks in the setting of of that miscarriage, if you will.
1: All right, that's a good way to think about it. On average, how many cases would you say you guys see in a year just as a group at UVA?
0: So it's a little bit variable, but when you put all those together, I would guess we have maybe one every four to eight weeks, something like that, and it's very unpredictable uh, in which group they will fall.
1: Okay. Well, let's start with the, the peripartum hemorrhage patients. Um, walk me through your workup for those patients.
0: Yeah, so these mostly are coming through the high-risk OB clinic that we have at UVA, uh, either identified, as I said, by ultrasound or MRI. I would say more and more at our practice, it's moving towards an ultrasound diagnosis. Mm. We've had some hits and some misses with MRI, but the ultrasound in the appropriate user's hand seems to be fairly accurate.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I would have thought that MR would be more yeah, accurate. Yeah, we are
0: using it pretty extensively, but but you know the, these are limited sequences, often in, in third trimester, um, so non contrast MRS, mm-hmm. and often it it looks more invasive perhaps than it than it has been in reality. Um, but the ultrasound has been good, and in circumstances where we're not sure, I would say we're using MRI to to try to figure that out, if you will.
1: Okay. Are you consulted on all of the patients with a accretive spectrum?
0: So if if it's a patient that they deem high risk for the peripartum period, so high risk for significant blood loss or high risk for having to convert to a cesarean hysterectomy in patients Mm. that want uterine preservation, uh, that's where we have played a role. Um, Again, this is not the same at every hospital. Uh, It depends on who your high-risk OB are, um, what your availability is in the operative setting, um, what your capabilities are for a hybrid OR, those sorts of things, because the literature is a little mixed on the benefits, on the efficacy uh, of utilizing this technique. So typically, if if patients fit that criteria, then we're seeing them in, in our outpatient clinic during the third trimester.
1: Okay. You mentioned a good thing, a hybrid OR. Is that something that you think is required to do these cases in the community?
0: So I think in order to, if you want to go down this route of providing sort of intraoperative, then what we're talking about here is uterine artery or or internal artery artery balloon occlusion or embolization. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll we'll go
1: into the specifics of that for sure.
0: It definitely needs to be, I think, in the hybrid OR setting. Because these these patients, mostly they could be, but mostly your obstetricians, and and in our case, a a combination of obstetricians and gynecologists, uh, oncologists, they're not going to transfer their patient off their OR table. So um, so if you can't get them off the table, then they're never going to get to your angel suite.
1: I guess I was more thinking of um, doing it with a CRM in the OR.
0: So so we've done that. The image quality is very challenging, especially prior to delivery. You know, you have a full-term pregnancy and sure. you're imaging the pelvis mm-hmm. trying to mitigate radiation. Uh, so I think an underpowered C-arm, it could be technically challenging because we try to do all this without uh, digital subtraction and angiography.
1: Okay, so now let's get into the technical details of balloon occlusion. Walk me through what you need for the procedure and then how you perform the procedure.
0: Sure. So, as I said, I see them in clinic. We talk to them about the risks and benefits, and and really it becomes a conversation between the patient, uh, the obstetrician, and us about what we think we can offer, and then we try to establish sort of a plan up front about what we will plan to do and then what our sort of bailout options are or or what our alternative plans may be. Uh, Because a lot of this, as I said, is predicated upon uterine preservation or not, because that can dictate sort of how we proceed through the procedure. And so if we're looking at a patient that... Is considering uterine preservation. And so in a high risk pregnancy, so a patient that, that might have some sort of accreta percreta spectrum, mm-hmm. but wants uterine preservation, then that's probably our highest risk patient because you're looking at an inherent uh, placenta and, and trying to remove that placenta again is a little bit controversial versus just overselling it in. That's where we probably play our biggest role in trying to mitigate blood loss. And that can be prophylactic or Mm -hmm. it can be therapeutic. And so in both cases, it's probably pretty similar. our, Our initial setup
1: okay so what do you have on your what do you have in your back table
0: yeah so a lot of it goes into prep right so you're looking at trying to prep out someone for either vertical or a low midline incision for a cesarean section as well as a viral femoral drape prep and so we typically prep it all in at once initially in our Mm -hmm. first experience we were doing separate preps and we found that was a big mistake because when they go to prep they completely forget that your sheets are there and the risk of disruption is i think increased and so we prep everything at once uh, in the beginning so we're ready to go, they're ready to go, and then I work with, with bilateral femoral access.
1: So, so just so I'm clear, are you saying that the OR nurses are set in their ways and uh, can't prep a certain way? I'm just, I'm just so surprised.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they pretty much want maximum exposure and forget that we've even been there.
1: <laughs> okay, so you got the big prep. You have uh, everything in your hybrid suite. What all do you need to do the procedure?
0: Yep. So. Typically working at a young female Mm -hmm. as well as a newborn. And so we're really trying to mitigate radiation. And with that in mind, we end up opening more inventory than you might typically. So we're opening pretty much duplicate inventory for both sides. Um, We have the luxury of being able to work with with fellows at my institution. And so we can sort of work simultaneously. Uh, We'll have two techs and then two operators working simultaneously. And we will... uh, Obtain bilateral femoral access Mm -hmm. and then rapidly go to six French uh, Ansel type 45 centimeter sheaths.
1: Okay. All right. So you go, you start with a long sheath. All right. And then then you select the internal iliacs bilaterally.
0: Yeah, and that's obviously up to operator's choice. I typically use a 65-centimeter Cobra catheter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find uh, with with a young bifurcation, the Cobra can get you up and over. A Cobra can then select the internal, and a six-french sheath can also track over the Cobra. So there's a little bit of step-off there, obviously, from a five-french catheter to the sheath. But they're very forgiving bifurcations, and you can rapidly uh, get bilateral internal access, I would say. I looked at our average fluoroscopy time for the whole procedure, and it was somewhere around three minutes or so.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Um, Why have you elected to place long sheets rather than just placing the occlusion balloons within the internals?
0: Yeah, so I find the the long sheet gives you the most flexibility. Um, So once you're up and over and the sheets are in the internal, we're looking at exchanging for perhaps an occlusion balloon or exchanging for an endocatheter if you need to to get a different uh, angle to select the uterine or other branches that might be injured. Okay. And I also find that the sheath, once it's in, and you're thinking about using occlusion balloons, you can also inject through that sheath to confirm occlusion.
1: I see. Okay. That makes a lot of sense.
0: And it increases our stability. So we have just another way of increasing stability during movement. There's mm-hmm. significant, obviously, mm-hmm. manipulation of the uterus during the operative time. i gotcha. just trying to mitigate any any... Malposition, Because that's where we've seen the failure in some cases is malposition of catheters, right? Both in in our procedure as well as in a lot of the Reboa literature, which I guess is somewhat similar when you you look at at Reboa use.
1: Okay. And so then you have all your stuff in place. You're done with your procedure. You've secured your sheets. Am I forgetting anything about the actual procedure itself?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, once you're up and over... Then I'm typically exchanging for, I like to use Rosen wires. Um, The Rosen wire obviously has a relatively short taper, a curved tip, so it's not going to hopefully, you know, get too far in. It'll Mm -hmm. stay in the the main parent vessel. You don't want to select too far into any uterine artery because you don't know exactly where they're going to clamp it. Uh, So the last thing you want them to do is, is cross clamp across your wire. Oh. Mm. Um, and, and I exchange. Uh, we usually use python balloons at our institution. Okay. Uh, again, it depends on the, on the size of the internal, but usually like a 9 millimeter python balloon is sufficient. And, and I'll do uh, test confirmations of occlusion, occlusion. And that test confirmation, it's not much. So I use one cc syringes because the volume is very little. Mm-hmm. And so for the test occlusion, obviously do one side at a time because um, I don't want to occlude both internals at the same time. Okay. And I'll test occlude. It's usually, I would say, 0.3, 0.4 ml is okay. all you need to occlude. Mm-hmm. Confirm occlusion by injecting the sheath uh, under our fluorosave okay. and do that on both sides. And then I'll leave sheath, occlusion balloon, Rosen wire all in mm-hmm. uh, and deflated. Gotcha. Okay.
1: Keep everything in, keep it deflated, secure, um, and then you let the OBs do their thing. That's
0: right. And typically, I also, I I mark on the drape the position of everything um, Mm. so that I know whether the sheath has come back, whether the occlusion balloon has come back, whether the wire has been pulled. So I I kind of mark in increments of that triaxial system uh, where everything is because it's going to disappear under the drape when they they go to fold open um, their drape.
1: And am I right in thinking kind of like um, you won't really have easy access to fluoroscopy? That's right. right? There's
0: no access to fluoro once they, they bring in uh, whatever they're using for, for the operative portion. So it's going to take a good, you know, three to five minutes probably to get the, the fluoro machine back in. And, mm-hmm. and they're going to mm-hmm. typically ask for balloons to be inflated blindly. And so that's why you want to know volume. And you want to be confident that nothing's moving because the last thing you want to do is, you know, inflate this balloon in the external iliac artery because Mm. it's been been malpositioned for some reason, or inflate 0.3, 0.4 mLs that occluded the internal, and now it's in the obturator artery or something, because that's where you can get, obviously, damaged blood vessel.
1: Oh, got it, got it. Okay, okay. These are all really, really important points that maybe I have not thought about before, (laughs) perhaps. This is why I call you for all my cases, (laughs) Dan. Okay, so um, they ask you to inflate the balloons every single time, correct?
0: So. I would say it's a little bit surgeon dependent. Um, sometimes they get in there and the placenta just comes right out. Oh, okay. Um, sometimes they can eyeball the placenta and say this is going to be very hard to remove and, and they'll ask for the balloons to be up. Sometimes, uh, and we've gotten this a couple times now, is just oversew the uterus hmm. and then perform an embolization. So don't just put balloons up, but actually perform an embolization. Uh, and then they can go after that to do whatever needs to be done, whether that be a planned hysterectomy or, or an attempt to remove uh, the placenta. So all, all those options are present. It just mm-hmm. depends uh, from a surgical preference well, what they prefer, I would say.
1: And they don't know that you would have to perform an embolization until they get in there and see the placenta?
0: So I think that that's one way we've failed. And I think that's one space the the literature has failed, is that by the time you get more than a liter of blood loss, it's happening very quickly, because mm. um, this is a gravid uterus, and often this is a, a well-perfused placenta. There's perhaps, I don't know, perhaps a misconception that internal iliac artery occlusion prevents a, you know, a dry surgical bed. We all know that's completely untrue. Mm. Um, Who, you know, wait, is
1: that in the OB literature? <laughs> is that real?
0: I'd love to know what the perfusion pressure is downstream of an inflated balloon. Oh, so yeah. this has been studied in, in the splenic artery, obviously, uh-huh, uh-huh. and that's a much less well-collateralized, obviously a well-collateralized, but much less well-collateralized sure. field than, than a gravid uterus is, and that's what 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury drop. And so I don't know how much it drops, and that's, I think, where we, we've had some failures in the literature, is mm-hmm. that it hasn't mitigated some blood loss, uh, and that's probably why.
1: Oh, okay, Wow. Mm, let's see, where can we go from here? Um, is there anything else that you kind of want to talk about for the peripartum hemorrhage?
0: I guess the only thing I would add is if you are considering an embolization, mm. um, you need to be mindful, and you're using, using a python-type balloon. Obviously, there's more than one type of occlusion balloon out there, but, but for us, that's what we have as a python balloon, is you need to be mindful of what microcatheter you put through it. Okay. Um, not all microcatheters are compatible with the occlusion balloon, even though it is an O35-ID Uh, For example, uh, you need a 2.5 French microcatheter to go through the occlusion balloon, Mm -hmm. the python occlusion Mm -hmm. balloon, but you can't put in a 2.9 French, for example, high-flow microcatheter. And that's what you want, right? You want something where you're going to do some large particle embolic, perhaps, or an ability to get good image quality. And you have to sort of sacrifice that if you're going to keep the occlusion balloon in and inflate it. Interesting. Okay. And I guess the last thing I would add is, is think about how long you can keep those balloons up Hmm. I don't think anyone knows again there's probably still good antegrade blood flow um, even when the balloon is inflated but but I've typically taken the balloons down for 30 seconds a minute at a time and then reinflated for 10 minutes or so so take them down oh. give them a little break okay, okay. Uh, to make sure that you are allowing you know antegrade flow and not forming thrombus in the internal
1: oh man has that has that been an issue ever that you've seen is thrombus formation
0: I haven't had thrombus form mostly I don't know. Either it won't form because it's integrated flow, yeah. or we are taking the balloons down, as I said. But the one thing I have seen is, is with significant blood loss, you have to be mindful sometimes of what that initial inflation volume was. I certainly have had the internal vasoconstrict on me, and, and you go to inflate zero point four mLs, mm-hmm. all of a sudden all you needed was point one point two, oh. and then you can end up with sort of a, a rounded looking occlusion balloon shaped internal iliac like, artery because you, you sort of overinflated relative yeah. to that vasoconstricted artery that happened during the non-imaged blood loss time.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because I guess the occlusion balloons are strong enough to remodel that internal. Yeah,
0: so I had one that, that it very much looked like the shape of a python balloon.
1: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but
0: but it did, I, I was a little bit scared, and it did remodel on mm. follow-up imaging, so it looked actually okay.
1: Well, awesome. That's a great overview of the peripartum hemorrhage um, internal iliac technique. Now let's walk through something that a lot of community IR doctors might get called about, which is postpartum hemorrhage. So is there a trigger at UVA at which the OBs will call you for a postpartum hemorrhage?
0: So this one is also widely variable, and I think in some ways it depends on the patient, Mm -hmm. it depends on the obstetrician, Mm -hmm. and perhaps it's all those variables together. We know nationwide that for postpartum hemorrhage, there are many more hysterectomies performed than there are uterine artery embolizations or pelvic arteriograms with embolization for sure. an attempt at, at uterine preservation. And so we know nationwide that's present. Uh, why it's like that, I think that's probably a, a much deeper discussion than we could ever cover.
1: Well, I mean, there's like... There's a ton of things, right? Like there's availability of IRs. There's willingness of IRs. So I do have some older partners who don't believe in postpartum embolization. Um, I think, you know being able to get everybody in in a timely fashion. Um, so there's there's just, you're right, tons of issues surrounding it.
0: Yeah, I think access to care is a big one. There's a tremendous number of deliveries every year in mm-hmm. smaller hospitals. We know there's, you know, logarithmically more OBGYNs than there are interventional radiologists, Yeah, and, and it has to be timely. And if it can't be timely, then then you're looking at a hysterectomy because no one wants to let their patient bleed, you know, waiting two, three hours to get the team ready or to transfer if you had to, to get access to that care.
1: Okay. Okay. So let's say you're at an institution that offers you UAE, postpartum UAE around the clock. What is the, is there a like amount of blood loss that gets triggered that OB
0: calls you? So usually it's more than this thousand, you know, more than a liter of blood. So we know that in a normal delivery, you could easily lose 500, 800 perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so it's typically been a large volume or it's been perhaps not a large volume, but ongoing bleeding after delivery. And ongoing bleeding, when when an obstetrician calls you and said I have significant ongoing bleeding, I take them seriously. Okay, because they
1: more. see a lot of blood. <laughs> yeah. So they're they're
0: used to one liter blood losses. Yeah. And so if they call yeah. you and they say I have significant bleeding, yeah, you know they mean it. It's not like, you know, some other services where, where they call you and, and it's a venous ooze. Sure. If they say there's significant bleeding, they're almost always correct.
1: Okay. I know this, but let's just say it out loud. Are there any imaging studies that you need to get before you take the patient to the angio suite?
0: So I would say in general, we are having a CTA of the, they usually do add in pelvis, really, we just need pelvis. But a CTA mm. is typically being performed. I wouldn't say that I need it. And if someone called me and said, I have this patient, they're bleeding significantly. Yeah. Can you take them? Mm-hmm. I would do the procedure without. Um, because I think the anatomy is relatively consistent. Sure. You know where you're going to start. If you don't see it initially, you know where to look secondarily. Mm-hmm. And if you don't see anything, then you've at least ruled out a potentially life-threatening source of bleeding.
1: So what's your like goal of time from when the OB calls you to when you're sticking the ephemeral?
0: Yeah, so I, we, we try to do it as soon as possible. If it's during the day, we'll bump cases for it. If it's okay. at night, we're calling the team in. Short answers we have to get is whether we can do this Patient with sedation, whether this patient needs to be intubated before mm. coming down, mm-hmm. um, whether they need to be transferred to the ICU. At our institution, mm-hmm. most patients are on sort of the postpartum floor, which yeah. is a little bit of a unique space, and so often they're getting rapidly transferred to our surgical ICU and then down to us.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah. No. That um, that nails all of that stuff. Okay, so then the procedure, I imagine, is very similar to just like a regular UAE. But let's talk a little bit about the differences. First of all, do you always go femoral?
0: So I do. I know that it, that's controversial, as I say controversial many times. But, mm-hmm. but I like to use a femoral artery. You're it's femoralist. So, yeah, I got it. <laughs> it's very reliable. I know I can always access it. Yeah. I can very rapidly get into the internals bilaterally. And I know it will work. And the radial artery, these are young people. They vasospasm down. It can be very small. Definitely. Um, And so I prefer the femoral artery. It's a universally, that's how I do this procedure.
1: Okay. And then are there any other differences between how you would kind of do your run-of-the-mill UAE and doing a postpartum
0: EMBO? Yeah, so the biggest difference is, is the embolic material. And so, one, you have to identify what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, a, a vaginal tear or vaginal bleed or super cervical or cervical region bleed is much different than an intrauterine bleed. Mm-hmm. And so, once you identify that, you're looking at, at perhaps a switching from a permanent embolic like a coil to a temporary embolic like, like a gel foam or, or something like that.
1: Okay. Feel free not to answer this, but what percentage of the time do you feel like you find an active bleed um, when you're doing the postpartum cases?
0: I would say most times they're, they're bleeding, or at least you're identifying a pseudoaneurysm okay. on the initial non-selective run. And then often when you select, or when you super select a uterine artery, often it will start to bleed again. I see. Okay. And I would say uh, the majority of the time as I said, many of these patients are coming with with CTs before because I think it can be helpful because it helps localize where am I going to be going? Am I going to be sort of in the uterus or am I going to be, I don't know, extra uterine, I'm not sure that's a word, but, you know, in the pelvis but not in the uterus for a source of bleed. Because we've seen bleeds, you know, in pelvic sidewall. We've seen bleeds that are are down on on the perineal surface. Bleeds are in the vagina but not in the uterus itself. Mm. And so we need to make sure we know, where to look, because also you want to pick the right side first, and that's where seems yeah. to be helpful. It's to guide you to a side, because obviously it takes a little bit of time to, to do one side and then the next.
1: Okay. Um, how often are you checking the ovarian arteries after these?
0: So I'd say, like I said earlier, the for secondary sources, if I don't see something, I think it behooves you to have to at least put a pigtail up there, you know, mm-hmm. at the level of the renal arteries, and make sure you're not missing uh, an aberrant supply. Okay. Uh, we we know the literature <clears throat> uh, says the aberrant supplies, I don't know, maybe five percent or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, subjectively, I feel like I see it much more commonly, is that and right? I don't know if that's just in the postpartum state, the ovarian arteries also uh, sort of hypertrophy. Yeah. But but. You think you have to check them unless you found a convincing source. I think one thing you definitely have to check, you have to check both sides. You can mm. definitely have satisfaction of search. If, if you do a very nice embolization on one side, uh, you know, you're not done yet.
1: Nailed it. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, nailed it for your partner to come back later. Yeah.
1: <laughs> let's just hope Luke's on call after you. <laughs> so let's say you do your do your bilateral uterine arteries. You don't see anything actively bleeding Do you do a non-selective gel foam embolization at that point?
0: So I have not typically been doing prophylactic embolization. Um, Again, these are often younger patients. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to preserve uterine flow as much as possible. We want to be mindful of the fact that they may want to carry a future pregnancy. Um, This is not a fibroid vascular bed. So it's not like we're getting preferential flow to one part and and, and a paucity of flow to sort of the normal uterus, you're probably going to get relative uniform distribution throughout the the Mm -hmm. uterine musculature. Mm -hmm. And so we don't, at least in my practice, want to embolize unless I see something convincing.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think there's kind of like a, Kind of like sometimes when you're doing these cases late at night or in the middle of the night, you're like, "Well, I'm here and like the person's bleeding.
0: I'm yeah, just going to put gel
1: foam in because like it's going to go it's going to go away." But you're right; it's not. It's different than a fibroid uterus.
0: Yeah, and and there are vascular beds, as we all know that if you're doing it at night, you know to open the gel foam before you even start Yeah. because <laughs> no matter what, some gel foam is going in. <laughs> um, but this is not one of those vascular beds, at least for me.
1: Cool. All right, and then what kind of post post operative or post
0: procedural follow up do you do for these patients? So, again, we're not typically doing any imaging, right? These are young patients. We Mm -hmm. don't want to image them unless we have to. So, it's pretty much clinical symptoms Um, resolution of bleeding, stability of hemoglobin, um, clinical exam, making sure that there's no ongoing signs or symptoms of bleeding. If if that's the case, uh, we consider that satisfactory. I don't typically see sort of recurrent or late onset bleeds. Mm. Typically, if it resolves, uh, you know, in a 24 to 48 hour period, it holds. Gotcha.
1: How many of these cases would you say are redos? Like you go in, don't see anything, maybe because the person's vasoconstricted and then you're, somebody has to come back later and do it.
0: I've not seen it uh, as much. I think that the times that you do see it and and the most challenging cases that we face are those patients in extremis that I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. because they've tipped the scales over into almost like a DIC-type picture. I see. And if you missed your window early, so if you didn't get them when they were transfusing but ongoing bleeding, if you missed that window, sort of that equilibrium of transfusion to blood loss, and you've tipped over in, into just blood loss and now hypovolemic shock, then, then you often end up more in, in almost like a DIC picture, similar to patients we see with you know, recurrent lumbar bleeds that are coagulopathic mm, yeah. or the cirrhotics that are coagulopathic. Um, if they bleed enough, uh, you start to see that DSE picture, and that's where it's very hard to get hemostasis.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Could you speak a little bit about fertility after uh, emergent uterine artery embolization?
0: Yeah, so this is not well-studied. I think we all know that. Uh, There's some recent data coming out of of fibroid-type trials about fertility afterwards, and I guess perhaps you could extrapolate that. It makes you feel good that you're using a temporary embolic and not a permanent spherical embolic, that you're using large embolic and not a small embolic. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think uh, you've done everything that you can to make it safe, and then you also have to realize that if they're calling you that the alternative is likely hysterectomy. Mm. And so I think when you frame it in that light and when you talk to the patient, like, we're going to do this procedure. We're going to embolize or block a blood vessel if we see bleeding. We're going to try not to if we don't see bleeding. But if there is significant bleeding and we can't stop it, then you're perhaps facing a hysterectomy. Mm. And when you, when you frame it like that, almost every patient, if they're interested in uterine preservations, like that sounds good, let's do yeah. that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that's kind of how I frame it. We certainly know that patients can carry term pregnancies after, after uterine artery embolization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would guess that, that the literature would, would support, support us doing this because there's not a good alternative.
1: For sure. Are there any other technical points you would make for folks who maybe are? just starting out um, or are are somehow seeing an increase in these cases?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One is, as I mentioned earlier, the coagulopathic patient. And this is the biggest challenge because then you're looking at having to, we've talked up to this point about large sort of non-spherical temporary embolic. Mm -hmm. And if you have a patient that truly is in, in DIC, and this is where you probably need anesthesia support, um, you're going to need to look at things more than platelets and hemoglobin. You know, you're going to need to look at clotting times and rotems and fibtems, these things that I can't interpret, but an anesthesiologist <laughs> can, to think, do I need to use a permanent embolic material? Okay. And, and that's probably the biggest challenge because once you do that, you obviously can't take it back. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to think The uterus is, is, is its origin very easy to catheterize, but uterine branches can be tremendously challenging to catheterize. And if you can't get there, then you're looking at considering a quote-unquote proximal embolization um, or you're thinking about switching to a liquid embolic.
1: Okay. Downsides of proximal embolization. Go. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So they have their obvious downside, right? You do do your proximal embolization and you inject and it's immediately collateralized through intramuscular branches to the back door. and, And you're like, oh damn it, because <laughs> um, you boxed yourself out. Yeah. And so then you're looking at either more complete particle embolization uh-huh. uh, after trying to, to just do a proximal embolization, mm-hmm. um, or you're hopeful perhaps you can go to the contralateral side and mm-hmm. get a liquid embolic delivery distally uh, or some combination of both of those things. But no one wants to to fill the uterus up with glue or onyx or, or perhaps, you know, one of the newer liquid embolics that's coming onto the market soon. Yeah. And so I think these are, these are the challenging ones. Um, mm. Try to get out as distally as possible. If you think you're going to have to use something more than a gel foam, I guess is one thing. But again, getting distal can be hard. Uh, these are young patients in muscular arteries that you sort of get one chance to catheterize. Mm. Once you catheterize it, when you take that microcatheter out, it's going to likely be spasm to occlusion.
1: Yes. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. if you pull that microcatheter back... you know, it's (laughs) over.
1: Okay. That was, uh, you mentioned that's one point. Um, Any other technical points about the procedure that you think are important here?
0: You know, again, I try to mitigate radiation in these patients. So so I find I always have to double check with our technologists about what is our frame rate? What's our pulse rate? Mm
1: -hmm. Trying
0: to modulate that throughout the procedure. So for access, I may not do uh, an angioseal run, as we might call it at our hospital, yeah. I might just know I've punctured the femoral artery and be confident with that. We may not do DSA images along the way. Um, just do flora saves and then do a DSA once you're in sort of the most important location. So the spot you really want to be diagnostic. Increasing the pulse rate for getting up and over just so I can minimize my time, but mm-hmm. then decreasing my pulse rate back down mm-hmm. when I'm sort of futzing around in the internal because I can get a very nice, you know, roadmap or something like that. Gotcha.
1: Okay, cool. Um, well, I think we had like a pretty good coverage about the options for peripartum and postpartum. Do you want to just briefly touch on reboa as an option?
0: Yeah, I, and I could mention too the the sort of last more elective one is this concept of a uterine or, uh, AVM, uterine arteriovenous malformation. Yeah. Um, it's a horrible name, yeah, I guess, it would be the first thing I would say. <laughs>
1: okay. It's not an AVM?
0: <laughs> I guess you could say it's an acquired AVM. Uh-huh. Um, so it's but, an AVF. Okay. It, it's more <laughs> a, of a mixture between an AVF, so arteriovenous fistula. Sometimes if you have perhaps a little bit of retained placenta, but typically we're trying to make sure we don't have retained placenta. Mm-hmm. You might have a little sort of capillary level blood flow going on there. But, mm-hmm. but mostly we're looking at... It's more like an AVF than our arterial venous malformation. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are in in those settings of of earlier trimester, you know, first, second trimester, missed abortion or spontaneous abortion. Uh, And so patients that are having, it's often episodic intermittent bleeding over the period of days to weeks Mm -hmm. uh, after one of these Mm -hmm. has happened.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And then what are the technical components that are different in managing those?
0: Yes, I think this, this is again a little bit uh, controversial with with the OB literature. Um, I've seen certainly some some people talk about it, and it seems to me it would be scary. But managing this hysteroscopically, um, oh. really without significant blood loss, um, or expectantly, realizing mm-hmm. that that most of these should get better on the own. But but it's a hard thing um, for for a woman to you know just be bleeding all the time. And Mm -hmm. often they can bleed to the point of needing transfusion. And so while it might not be life-threatening like some of these severe postpartum hemorrhage cases, it is perhaps life-disabling. And in those cases, uh, that's where we have played a role. Um, It's typically being diagnosed, I would say, for us on MR. And so MR is excellent at diagnosing this, multi-phase MR. Um, You can see often what side. You can see sort of what part of the uterus um, and it can really help guide your therapy. It's one of the only times I would say I perform, if possible, unilateral uterine artery embolization.
1: Do you use um, a liquid embolic for that, or um, do you prefer particles, coils?
0: Yeah, I've typically gone with, with uh, a gel foam-like agent, so large, non-spherical, temporary embolic. Some people have used more spherical, permanent embolic, but, but for, for me, it, it, again, it's often young patients that want to have a future pregnancy, all I want is some sort of degree of tamponade and then let the body heal itself. Gotcha. And as long as you can identify the source, if I can do unilateral, like I said, that's the time I will.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, okay, these are, these are all very interesting things. I feel like I've learned quite a bit from this podcast, but don't worry, I'm still going to call you next time this happens yeah. to me. So always have Dan Sharon on speed, speed dial. We'll uh, put his phone number in the phone in the show notes. No, I'm just kidding. We, we won't do that. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about the role of Reboa in treating these patients.
0: So it's interesting when you when you look at, at larger series of data that have been coming out in the last three to five years. There there may be a role for and, and perhaps reboar is the wrong term. Rebo we kind of throw around as, mm. as transient aortic occlusion. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebo obviously being used used as sort of non-image guided in the case of significant trauma. But when you look at the ability to occlude flow to the pelvis, we know that internally like artery balloon occlusion is, is insufficient for, mm. for decreased perfusion uh, significantly to, to the pelvis. But we do know that there is significant downstream uh, decreased perfusion if you can occlude aorta. Mm. Yeah. And so, shockingly, some people have studied this. Um, I don't know how we would ever get approval to know, do that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but people have studied sort of, you know, inframesenteric uh, transient aortic occlusion um, okay. in the setting uh, of high-risk pregnancy delivery. Huh. And it's actually been quite promising that that you really can get mitigation of blood loss anemia uh, with transient aortic occlusion. But it comes with a a host of of very scary things. Uh, Yeah,
1: I'd say so. Man, I'm un- I wonder what the uptime is for that balloon.
0: Exactly. Uh, so you, you worry about, you know, everything in the internal, you worry about in the aorta, but it's much more because all of a sudden it's not in, you know, the, the yeah. dumpster where, where, no. where, where <laughs> if we embolize in the internal, we're okay. If we yeah. dissect the internal, we're okay. Sure. Um, if we get downstream thrombus in the internal, we're okay. But all of a sudden in the aorta, the stakes are much higher.
1: Wow, I um, I hope I never have to do that case. That sounds really stressful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we have not gone that way, um, but certainly we, we've talked about it. Um, okay. Because I think the literature is relatively convincing um, mm-hmm. that you get certainly marked decreased in flow. W-
1: where is the literature from, from Europe or from uh, Asia?
0: So it's more in the OBGYN literature and less oh. less in, in the IR literature that I've came across. And it's okay. not big series. You know, sure. th- These are small, small sort of groups of patients. And again, you you can look at, it depends what you like. If you want prospective randomized trials that are small, Mm -hmm. or do you want larger, you know, sort of meta-analyses of a bunch of retrospective studies, just, I I don't know, you can power your literature however you want, I guess.
1: (laughs) And it comes full circle now. That's the best thing about IR is you can always find something to prove what you want to prove. That's right. (laughs) Um, Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, I really appreciate you taking your time during this conference um, in beautiful Palm Springs to record this with me.
0: Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dung, Michael Barraza,
1: and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz.
1: Social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali,
0: and Manbir Singh Subli.
1: Administrative support provided by Jim Lui
0: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.